Welcome to The Road We Travel, a production of Drive Smart Virginia. In this installment, our guest is Joel Feldman. He's founder of the Casey Feldman Memorial Foundation. He runs the website ndd.org. And if you've ever heard him speak, I'm sure you haven't forgotten it. How is the fact that you've not yet been in a crash while driving distracted at all predictive that you won't be in one tomorrow or next week? Our guest is Joel Feldman. Joel's story. Joel, uh, you are somebody I see constantly out there uh, when I go to traffic safety conferences and your advocacy work and uh, what you've been doing for so many years now is really effective. And I know you work really hard at it. And the people that I've met in traffic safety who are the most committed, and you certainly seem to be, seem to be people who have a personal story. A per, uh, you know, they have a, a personal reason for being that devoted to a cause. Can you tell me your story, how you got in, involved in uh, advocating and, and teaching people about the dangers of distracted driving? Uh, sure. And thanks so much for having me on, Rich. I appreciate it. In July of 2009, my 21-year-old daughter, Casey, was killed by a distracted driver. She was walking across the street on a beautiful summer day in a crosswalk, and a 58-year-old man made a choice to take his eyes off the road to reach for his GPS. He rolled through a stop sign, and he hit Casey in the crosswalk, and we were called to the hospital, and Casey died about four or five hours later. <clears throat> so that was how I got into this. And I, I will tell you that before Casey was killed, I drove distracted regularly. I would email and I would text. I'd have meals in the car all the time. And I've seen your, your presentations several times at different conferences, and I'm always impressed that as you are introducing yourself to your audience, you make a point of saying that you used to do this, that you were guilty of it. I, th I think that helps people identify with you. I mean, we're all guilty of it to some degree. I, th I would hope that people who are more aware of distracted driving and its dangers you know, try to limit things like eating in the car and, and other distractions and certainly not using cell phones. But I, I think it's um, it's really impressive that, that you identify with your audience that way. It comes across not as preachy, you know? You're, you're sharing your story. You're not preaching something. Well, um, we don't want to be preachy. And it seems almost as, as, as you said, that since so many people do it, the audience is going to assume that the speaker does it. And you might lose your credibility if you don't make that announcement. Now, I don't know what a person who is genuinely never driven distracted would do, but that certainly wasn't me. And actually, to make it worse, I am and have been a personal injury attorney in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area for just about 40 years. And I regularly represented people who were in terrible crashes caused by distracted driving or the families of those who were killed. And that didn't stop me. I'd go to court, argue about how a defendant driver, uh, an employee was responsible and their employer was responsible for their actions. And I'd be on my phone when I left when I left the uh, courthouse. So, yeah, it was um, I was a terrible hypocrite, uh, but uh, no longer. No well, longer. We, we all are. Um, I, when I give presentations, I, I point out when I'm talking about distracted driving, we're quick to point it out, you know, when we see someone else doing it. But when we're the one doing it, there's always, well, I'm, I'm only doing it this time because, you know, or 
this is an important text, I need to respond to this, or, or we make excuses for all kinds of behavior that we criticize others for, like the, the person doing the stoplight prayer at the red light, and the light turns green, and they lead you, leave you stuck there. <laughs> I know a lot of people react to that with the head nod when I describe it. There is a ton of hypocrisy surrounding distracted driving. Some of the studies indicate that maybe 80 to 90 percent of us, our lar- largest highway traffic safety concern is other distracted drivers. Yet, and depending upon what study you look at, between 45 and 60 percent of us will often text while driving. I go into schools regularly, whether it's in person or by Zoom now during the pandemic, and I ask the kids, how many of your moms and dads drive distracted? 70 to 80 percent of the kids raise their hands, and I say, hey, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. Now, only put your hands down if your moms and dads have not told you not to drive distracted. None of the kids put their hand down. The parents are telling them not to drive distracted, but through their actions, they are showing them at some level, hey, it's okay to drive distracted because mom and dad do it. So terrible hypocrisy. And you're right. I used to, you know, look at other people drive distracted. I'd get all bent out of shape. And I'd say, well, you know, it's okay if I do it. I'm a good driver. I'm a safe driver, but I don't want the guy in the car next to me to do it, doing it. And, and that actually led into uh, one of the strategies that we've been using that we were taught by kids, actually. Probably everybody knows the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. No one likes it when they see someone else driving distracted. So shouldn't that tell us something about how we should treat others? So, so yeah, there's a ton of hypocrisy, and there's lots that we can do. And a lot of untapped messages, untapped untapped possibilities, because we have to go after all those excuses as you raise them. I mean, it's the driver who killed Casey, I was told by his wife, he only looked away for a few seconds. Um, I've worked with other families and the excuses that they tell me the driver who killed their loved ones say would be, hey, I'm a safe driver. I can handle it. It's an important call or text. Everybody does it. Uh, Driving is boring. We have to go after those excuses and point out how ridiculous they are. I mean, just take one. Take, I'm a safe driver. I've never been in a crash. How is the fact that you've not yet been in a crash while driving distracted at all predictive that you won't be in one tomorrow or next week? Exactly. And that, yeah. that probably would have been my excuse if I had killed somebody. That that it hadn't been a problem yet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who are who do you think are the most receptive audience? I know you you go to conferences, you go to high schools, you go to companies, uh, you go to colleges. You talk about this subject to a lot of different types of groups and people. Who's the most receptive? I would say probably high school students. And if you want to further define that, probably those like late middle school or early high school who are not, not yet driving. But I'll tell you, Rich, I have found that every audience is receptive. You just have to appeal to them in a different way, a way that resonates with them, particularly. You have to make them feel it, think it. And what we often say is it's not so much a discussion that's appealing to people's minds. In many ways, we're appealing to their hearts. Mm-hmm. I have to keep in mind when I'm talking to an audience or, or you know, working with younger folks, I'm, I'm in my 50s. So when I was growing up, when I was little, the phone was something that hung on the wall in the kitchen. Now, generations have grown up 
not knowing what it's like not to have a cell phone, you know, constantly being in touch. Um, and now with social media and the pressures of social media and the habitual and addictive nature of social media, all of that comes into play when they when they get behind the wheel. It's it's a little we didn't have the layers of distraction when I was learning to drive that exist now for younger drivers. Is that something that you address in your program? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought it up. I have had disputes when I do programs with highway safety offices for states or even larger you know, counties that perhaps encompass an entire metropolitan area, uh, because I want to talk about the addictive nature of the phone. And actually, um, I've had disputes with them. This is what I'll say. I hold up my phone and I say, I want you to assume that each and every one of you no matter how well-intended you are today when talking to the father of some of a daughter who was killed by distracted driving, I want you to all assume that unless you have a plan, you're going to use these. That's where the highway safety folks say, my God, Joel, you gave them permission to use their phone. And I disagree 100%. I didn't give them permission to use the phone. I'm just recognizing the fact that we are so addicted to these. And you can, you can put addicted in quotes. Sure. Um, but particularly the kids to take kids. So you have to have that plan. You have to have that plan and you have to tell them, hey, you know, yes, it's easy to say I'm not going to drive distracted while looking at a dad who's lost a daughter in, in a room. And I, and I call them out. I don't call them out, but I bring it up. I say, you have to have a plan. So that's why we go over a plan to avoid temptations, whether it's airplane mode or do not disturb while driving or some other app. And have a plan, you mean for parents to share develop a plan with their kids or, or are you talking about the kids having the plan? Well, both, but with the kids, I, I, and I'll actually say it probably, oh, I don't know, three or four times in the presentation. Hey, you know, let's assume you didn't put your phone on airplane mode. You didn't put it on do not disturb while driving and you're responding to the notifications. I'll give examples and we'll go through things. But by the end of that, they're probably sick of hearing me say airplane mode or do not disturb while driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's for them. And that with, with parents, uh, the most important thing for a parent to do is to be the driver you want your kid to be. And they're not doing it. As a matter of fact, I'll go into schools and once the kids tell me their moms and dads drive distracted, I'll ask them how many of you have little brothers and sisters? And when they raise their hands, I say, okay, I'm calling on you to teach your little brothers and sisters that even though mom drive distracted, we don't drive distracted. That's now got to be your responsibility to keep your little brothers and sisters safe because mom and dad are not cutting it. I like the way you get the investment out of your audience by, you know, if they won't do it, it's your job. You do it. You know, set, set that good example. Social norming is, uh, I think, a major issue here. How, how are we going to change the social norm? Virginia, fortunately, not too long ago, passed a law making it illegal to operate a motor vehicle, a moving motor vehicle, while holding a communications device, i.e. cell phone, in your hand, you know, while you're driving. But you still see people doing it all the time. And nobody flips out at a stoplight, you know, pointing at somebody who's using a cell phone, although it's legal if you're stopped, but you get my point. Sure. Um, The social norm remains that it's just not unusual to look over and see somebody holding a cell phone when they're driving. It's just not that uncommon. When I'm, and I use this story a lot, in the 70s when I was a kid, if you were at a stoplight and you looked over on a Saturday afternoon and saw somebody drinking a beer in the car next to you, the driver, nobody flipped out. 
It just wasn't that unusual. But the social norms have changed. We know more now. We know how dangerous driving under the influence is. And by today's standards, that's completely unacceptable. I, I think somebody drinking a beer at a stoplight probably wouldn't make it too many more blocks before somebody calls a cop on them. How do we make that, that shift? How do we? It seems to have been somewhat successful with drunk driving. How do we get there with distracted driving? Well, I think the drunk driving, it has been, you said, somewhat successful, and I would agree with, agree with that precisely. It appears, from what my understanding is, that we've gotten folks who are perhaps not alcoholics to, you know, we'll call them recreational drinkers, social drinkers, to stop driving drunk. That's why we've reduced the number of fatalities substantially, but it seems like it's leveled off. That's roughly ten to 11,000 people are killed by drunk driving every year. And of course, one's too many. I mean, we're not minimizing sure. that, but I know. But so they've done a, a great job, but there's still there's still something missing if we're killing ten or eleven thousand people a year. Absolutely, you know, social norming. Um, what a lot of researchers, behavior change people, advocates, and people who you know rely upon some science look at is different theories. Like what what theory will explain or support the way you're speaking to folks, like what's your presentation based upon? And one of the ones that's most often cited, I think, is the theory of planned behavior. And there's basically three elements to that. It's, you know, address the attitudes and beliefs people have. Then, as you pointed out, it's the norms. And then it's leave people with the feeling that they know what to do and they believe that they can successfully do it. Some people refer to that as self-efficacy. So with respect to norming, a lot of the norming studies come from uh, working with college students in binge drinking. Uh, they were able to go in and show people that, well, hey, only, and I'm making these numbers up because I don't recall them, but you know, only 14 to 20% will binge drink of drinkers. And the kids kind of looked at it and said, wow, I thought everybody did it. So you had numbers to support the fact that if you did it, you were in the minority. As you pointed out, I don't know that we have those numbers. As a matter of fact, I used to try to, an approach like that, but when we kept seeing the, the stats going up, when it used to be 25, 30% of kids would text and drive, I could argue two thirds or 75% don't and make them feel that if they did, they're not part of the right group. Now with the numbers between 45 and 50%, that's not such a good argument in the traditional sense. Yeah, it's the other way now. Oh, really? Yes. But yes, as you pointed out, we have to change the attitude. I mean, I'll ask people, raise your hand if in the last month you've been a passenger in a car uh, with someone who you thought had too much to drink. I rarely get anyone, whether it's an adult or a kid, to raise their hand. And I don't ask them if they did it. I sure. ask a passenger, right, because I want them to be honest. Right. And then I say, OK, raise your hand now if you've been a passenger in a car and your driver's been texting, you know, TikTok, Snapchat, social social media, whatever. Not everybody raises their hand, but I bet you 90% do. So what is the norm? As you pointed out, the norm is, unfortunately, that people are doing this. So how do you change it? I think you change it by, you know, if if I could figure out a way, and actually with, you know, Drive Smart Virginia's leadership and the National Coalition on Distracted Driving, you know, my subcommittee through that is youth education, and we're working on this. How do you get kids to feel that it is wrong? How do you get kids to feel, gosh, 
I've got a responsibility to speak up when I see other people do it. And, you know, we've got some ideas. We're going to be doing some focus groups and trying to get to the heart of those messages. And there are many folks, you, me, other people around the country who are doing talks. We try out different things. Sometimes we have some science behind it. Sometimes it's an intuition. Well, we need to, I think, get some more science behind it and make sure that we're really creating and uh, presenting messages that look right to kids, uh, that sound right, that feel right, and cause them to make some changes. Today, distracted driving is not like drunk driving. It is not yet socially unacceptable. And of course, we all look forward to a day when if you get in a car, it's the assumption that people will not drive you distracted and an expectation. And I want to get into enddd.org, how you started that and what you do through the nonprofit. But you brought up, you had worked on some some ways to reach younger drivers and, uh, and just younger people in general. You worked with, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to try to remember what, I think it was a university to design that program. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, within a couple months after Casey was killed, she was killed in New Jersey. New Jersey was trying to pass, and they did pass, and they wanted to educate the public about a new um, pedestrian safety law. The essence of it was, in most states, you yield to pedestrians. In New Jersey, the law is you stop for pedestrians. So that's a difference. Mm-hmm. So they asked me if I would tell Casey's story. I, I did. It was difficult at first, but it felt right to me. And then one day, and I remember where I was, I remember looking at the audience and saying, what do you know about getting people to change their attitudes and behaviors? So that began a search. Are there any distracted driving presentations that are scientifically based, that have been tested, that are effective? I couldn't find any. And in in my backyard, literally, in Philadelphia, from my law office is Children's Hospital. Of Philadelphia, and they have wonderful researchers there. And I came to them with that problem, and they said, let us help you create one. And they helped us create one, and then they sort of insisted that we do pre- and post-presentation surveys to see if we're being effective. Mm-hmm. And back then, it wasn't online. I mean, I remember delivering boxes, boxes of surveys <laughs> for them to analyze. And they were so great that folks at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, they analyzed me and said, hey, yeah, this is working. This isn't change this. And and of course, we, we continue to do that, but it's online through SurveyMonkey now. And it's um, much, much easier, much easier. Yeah. How long after your, your daughter, Casey, died, um, did you start NDD.org and a larger question, how does someone go about that? You know, um, that seems like a, that's a heavy lift. But like I said, I know you're very motivated. Well, I had to actually look at something for a, um, a, uh, a grant I'm applying for. They wanted to know the date that we sent the paperwork in, in, in our case, to Pennsylvania to incorporate. Casey was killed on July 9th, and the Secretary of State a charitable division in Pennsylvania received it on uh, August 26th. So it was in six, within six weeks. And that's really, really fast. I can tell you that through representing my law practice, representing folks with terrible catastrophic injuries and deaths, a number of the people that we had recoveries for, we were successful, wanted to and did set up foundations 
and give back to causes related to the way or the circumstances in which their loved one was badly injured or died. So I'd, I'd had that experience over years, so I knew I wanted to do it within days after Casey was killed. What you need to do is you need to make a decision. Are you going to have your own corporation, your own nonprofit, have your own IRS um, you know, tax-exempt number, or are you going to partner with another organization that can take care of that for you? Uh, the differences would be at the beginning, it's probably, you know, four or $5,000 of lawyer fees. I was able to do a bunch of that myself, although I'm not that kind of lawyer, but I was able to save money there. So you save money that way. Each year, if you have your own nonprofit, you have to have an IRS filing. And I'm fortunate. I have a friend of mine who's a CPA, and he's done it every year for free. So I don't have any of those costs, but you have those costs so there are other ways that you can get involved with organizations that already have the tax exempt status and you can do, run a lot through them perfectly legitimate and all it just it's not as heavy a lift as you described it what did you hope to accomplish i mean I, that sounds like such a silly question but i mean no, you know no, it's, it's, it's not like you know oh yeah. i'm going to start this nonprofit and this is going to yeah. i have to, i have to tell you at the beginning i was afraid and i don't know why but i was afraid that Casey would not be remembered. You know, she didn't have kids. She didn't find a career. She was between her junior and senior years in college. And I was afraid that um, she wouldn't be remembered. And I thought, you know, I have to do something to remember her. And it was natural to do distracted driving. But there's also other things we do. She was about to become a journalist. So we have we have some scholarships for journalists. We're actually about to launch a new program trying to pair college journalism students and programs with those in high school to as a mentorship to kind of kind of encourage high school kids to get into that casey was a big animal lover so we've supported causes for no-kill animal shelters and she did a lot of volunteer work so we offer scholarships to try to encourage young folks to work at nonprofits and kind of learn about giving back that sort of thing so I, I didn't know all of that back then, but I knew it had to do something with safety and driving, and it would have to do something with animals. But the other stuff just kind of fell into place. But what did I hope to accomplish? To remember Casey, but that shifted over time, and we were very fortunate. Um, so many people did remember Casey. So many people um, have helped us in different ways, whether it's volunteering, donating, uh, providing free services, and so I quickly knew that Casey would not be forgotten. And I wanted to give kids, young people, the life, the lives that Casey and others who are killed by distracted driving don't have. Now, I still want to keep older folks, and I'm a bit older than you. I'm 67, but I still want to give older folks that life. But I'm, I'm laser focused on kids. Sure. Matter of fact, we've also introduced some elementary school programs as well because you want to get to kids early. But I want to keep kids safe. I want to give them the lives that they should have. And I want to have as the least amount of families suffering because they've lost a loved one. I mean, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, people ask me, you know, how are you doing? And I look at them depending upon my mood. And sometimes I'll just look at them and say, I'm alive and my child is dead. And I'm the one with the future. So yeah. it's it's tough. It's tough. As being out there and advocating and being with the, the kids, the younger drivers, 
has it helped with dealing with the loss to go out there and try to do something to make a difference? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, people often would say, my gosh, I don't know how you could do that time after time, telling the story about how your daughter was killed. In in total, in an hour presentation, I might talk about Casey for three or four minutes, maybe. And I don't, well, of course, now I'm going to do it now, but I don't really think about her being hit, her being conscious on the road and, you know, slowly losing consciousness or speaking. You know, I don't think about those things because those are painful. I think about Casey and I think about how blessed we were to have her in our lives for, for 21 years, um, how what an impact she made on other people and how I've been given an opportunity to do something in her memory. And it's wonderful. I mean, I'm as personally and professionally fulfilled today as I've ever been in my life. I'd give it all back in a minute if I could and could have Casey, but sure. but we can't do that. So uh, it's it's right for me. I've been able to support a lot of folks. After Casey was killed, I got a master's in counseling, and one of my internships was at the University of Pennsylvania Hospice, doing grief counseling with folks who'd lost loved ones through the hospice program. And, you know, it's like a hospice. You know, you hear somebody works in hospice. You know, my reactions before Casey was killed was, my God, how could you do that? You know, and it's either right for you and it's not right for you. And it's it was right for me. And if we could snap our fingers and there wouldn't be any distracted driving, um, I'd be back doing grief counseling. Don't tell my law partners that. <laughs> I come back and I practice law. I only practice law about 20% of the time. And often, often I'm helping out lawyers, other lawyers, you know, in different parts of the country even, who have distracted driving cases and, and peculiar issues, that sort of thing. How was your your uh, your law firm when you first started? I mean, this there has to be a large time commitment. Were they supportive? What are you going to say? No. They have been, <laughs> oh, they have been, they have been so supportive. Now, I, I've been a partner at the firm since 19. I started there. Actually, my 40th anniversary will be March 1st. 2022. I started March 1st, 1982, and I became a partner in 1988. So, you know, I'm an owner, so I could sort of do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't mean they pay me. (laughs) I I don't bring in any money. But no, I could sort of do what I want to do. But if you come into our law office, you will see there's a support column in the lobby. And on that support column, they have Casey's story. And they did it as a surprise for me. I just walked in one day and it was, you know, I was gratifying, a very emotional, um, and they've just been wonderful. Uh, the Our elementary school lesson plans, they are the prime financial sponsor. Many of the lawyers in the law firm have done uh, talks at high schools with us alone. No, they've been wonderful support. And I mean, my friends, you know, and they were the people that I turned to for support when I was grieving Casey. And those, they were the folks who said, whatever you want to do is fine with us. Whatever you want to do is fine with us. And, I, and I've actually, it's the law firm of Anna Paul Weiss in Philly. I've actually gone to some of the partners and I said, you know, I didn't have such a good year here. I didn't bring in enough money. Why don't you cut my base draw? And they got angry at me. Hmm. They wouldn't do it. And I tried to go to the controller and tell her to do it. And she said, I can't. They've already come to me. They knew you would come to me, and I can't do it. <laughs> they cut you off, Joel. They yeah, headed you off so. at the pass, man. They saw it coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
That's so, great. That's terrific. Because that's that's great. that's so uh, that's so that's, that's just such wonderful support to have, you know, uh, in doing something like. Well, let's talk about ndd.org. It's a website if you want to look at it that way. Uh, it's also a nonprofit and uh, a resource. What does ndd.org offer to the public, to groups, universities, schools? Um, if you go to the website, what do you find? Okay. So technically, uh, Casey Feldman Foundation is a legal entity, a Pennsylvania corporation that's been granted tax-exempt status by the IRS. ENDD.org is not a legal entity. It's a com- it's a campaign of Casey's Foundation. Got it. Okay. So what, what you'll find is you'll find um, presentations for middle school, high school, whether you have a PC or you have a Mac, you can download those presentations. There's training videos the PowerPoint version of the presentation has the notes for every slide has a note and explains our philosophy from, hey, you better tell the kids right up front that you drove distracted if you want to have credibility to the last slide where we say, you know what, you can change this. You can change the way everyone thinks about distracted driving. So those are the presentations. We have a section for the our elementary school lesson plans. We have one for second and third grade one for fourth and fifth grade. And although it's not elementary school, people, the educational folks that we work with created one for sixth grade. We're actually about now to release a K through two picture book about distracted driving, um, a, a meerkat, that's our character, that comes from the animated videos in the lesson plans. So we took that same character in a K through two picture book. We're about to release that. And it talks about what distracted driving is with little kids, and it teaches about distracted driving. And then the the character Sam, this meerkat, this little kid, uh, he sees dad texting while driving and the thought process he goes through. And then finally, he speaks up using a non-confrontational I statement. He doesn't say, Rich or Dad, you're going to kill us by your driving. He doesn't take the phone. He just says, I'm nervous when you look away from the road at your phone when you drive me. And that statement, whether it's an elementary school kid saying it, a middle school kid saying it, a high school kid saying it, mom, dad, I love you, but what you're doing is scaring me, that hits us. It hits us right in the chest like a ton of bricks. I was going to say, that's, fo- that's amazingly powerful. When you have your- and I focus that with... Oh, about 120 parents over the course of a couple of days, groups of 30, different statements. What should kids say? We get you to put the phones down. I had moms crying. I had dads hiding their tears, hoping no one else would see because it hit them like, my God, what am I doing? What am I doing? So, you know, our goal is to arm kids with what they can do now to speak up so they can keep themselves and their family members safe, but also make it less likely that when they get their licenses, they will drive distracted, creating a generation of kids who won't drive distracted. That's our hope. So when you go to the website, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's like a toolkit. You're just kind of opening it up and you've got all kinds of different things that you can use. Like if you're a teacher, there's stuff there for teachers and it's more than just um, emailing Joel to see if he can come speak. <laughs> you've given people tools oh, no, where no, they, no. Can, they can yeah, make a lot of has- difference themselves. Well, sure. We have about 175 speakers across the country, uh, mostly lawyers like myself, but we have a lot of injury prevention coordinators, nurses, doctors, just business people who expressed an interest of being trained and going into schools. 
Um, so there's stuff for them. There's uh, sample letters you can send to reach out to schools. There's the presentation. There's some videos of me giving training on the presentation. There's brochures, facts, statistics, research, if people want that. Um, links to the books, as I said, links to the presentation. We want to make it easy for people when they go to the website to learn about distracted driving, to be able to volunteer their time to go out and speak with kids and to help us in any way they can. We do have um, a spot on there. It's called Faces of Distracted Driving, kind of borrowing that from the old U.S. Department of Transportation site, where we tell the stories of people who've been involved in crashes we interview family members, surviving family members, so that um, their stories can be told because uh, there's there's power in telling stories. Actually, after uh, Casey, as I said, was about to become a journalist, she was the editor-in-chief of the Fordham University College newspaper. Oh, wow. And after she was killed, several of her colleagues reached out to express their condolences. And there was a common theme, Rich. The common theme was this. Casey taught us that each and every person has a unique and beautiful story. It's through the telling of those stories that we change the world and we make a difference. Mm. So we have actually journalism students at Fordham and also now the University of Colorado, where our son went, interviewing family members, writing stories and doing other things for us, our interns, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. Um, the world needs more trained journalists. So. So that's that's the website and the ndd.org, which is a program. How many times a year do you speak, Joel? I know you're busy. Well, I've actually spoken more during the pandemic because prior to the pandemic, most of my talks would be assemblies. Mm -hmm. So we're not having assemblies now, um, and it's difficult to do a virtual talk through an assembly. So I'm doing mostly phys ed. Uh, I'm sorry, health classes that are given by the phys ed teachers, some driver's ed classes, and then some other classes as well. So, you know, I remember back during the pandemic, a school that I had gone in each year and spoken to 600 juniors each year before their prom, they reached out and said, we'd love to have you come in, but there's no assemblies. Um, we want you to do it virtual. Will you speak to our health classes? And I said, yes. And they said, well, before you say yes, we should tell you. We have 24 health classes. <laughs> so I, I got some of my volunteer speakers from around the country. But I would say now, uh, since the pandemic, I don't know, 110, 120 talks a year. And it was probably 80 or 85 before that. Still 80 in a year. is That's, that's a lot. You keep working at the program and keep trying to make it better and more accessible and get the word out there. Because, like I said, in Virginia, we've got the legislation part somewhat in place, you know, so you can't hold a phone while you're driving. That's important. But then you've got enforcement and education, which I, I just I, I really believe it's better to get it to the person at the beginning before they start distracted driving, driving distracted or make them aware of it, because it's not just the phone. You know, there, there was distracted driving back when the Model T came out. There were things to distract us from our task of driving, but it's just so much of it now. And some of it built into the vehicles. Well, sure, there's so many issues, as you point out. I mean, I, sometimes I'll tell the story of a case I had where the defendant dump truck driver, I had him under oath, and I asked him to show us how the crash occurred. And he said, I had my hands on the steering wheel, 
I was going by a 7-Eleven. I saw a really hot girl in tight shorts walking in, and I turned to my left to watch her. And as I did so, my truck went over the double yellow line and hit your client's car. He killed their four-year-old son. Oh. Mm. So it's not just the phone. It's eating, it's daydreaming, it's looking around. And as you point out, uh, manipulating and engaging with very, very complex and cumbersome in infotainment systems that we shouldn't be allowed to operate them when the car is moving. Yeah, I've used the example of when I was in high school, if I wanted to change the bass or treble setting on my stereo, I didn't have to take my eyes off the wheel or off the road. I just pushed the outside knob in and turned it. I could do that without looking. Now you've got to navigate through menus before you can even get to the bass and treble. And, you know, it's there. I'm sure people do it while they're driving. They're not supposed to, and it can be printed as, you know, great big red letters on the owner's manual. Don't do this while driving. But if it's there and it works, some people are still going to use it. Well, absolutely. As a lawyer, I mean, I've handled auto crashes, but I've also handled, you know, what we call products liability cases, uh, bringing cases against manufacturers for dangerous products. And, you know, as you go research those cases and you talk to engineers, they say, a warning is the least effective thing you do. As engineers, it's our responsibility to design out the danger initially in the product. And we've got, you know, cars now where they're designing in the danger, doing just the opposite. That's interesting. So that, I hadn't thought of it that way, Joel. But yeah, I mean, you've got a lawnmower that has a metal shroud around the blades and all kinds of protective equipment. And if you take your hands off the push mm -hmm. bar, it'll turn the motor off and all, all this stuff. You know, they don't just slap a sticker on it saying, don't get your hand or foot near this dangerous spinning blade and then let it go. <laughs> you know, they, they built in some protection there. Well, early on, they probably did. Another example that the listeners might be familiar with, you know, you have the washing machine on spin, try to pick up the cover to put something in there. Mm -hmm. You can't in, in many models, or if you do, it immediately stops it because people were losing their arms in there. Yeah, warning labels are the least effective way to protect people from products. Education. Get them, get them before it becomes a problem or a habit. Because habits are hard to change, you know? And, and the phone, is, it's a habit. I know I don't read as much as I used to, if that makes any sense, because of social media. You know, I used to have a book all the time. It was like scratching an itch, especially when I went to bed. I'd read a few pages. Now I just pick up the phone and thumb through Facebook, which I find very sad. Well, Rich... If you put your mind to it, you can change. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe we can, you know, maybe we can conclude with, with sort of this. Uh, after doing this for 10 years, and I've been told I've spoken with about 200,000 teens and adults and about 900 presentations, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that we can change the way we drive. And that optimism comes from speaking with teens middle school kids, and occasionally the elementary school kids. We need to hone down the messages. We need to refine them. So we're, as, as I said earlier, so we're reaching people's hearts, not so much their minds. You know, with a person who's an inveterate distracted driver, successfully having driven distracted many, many times, and they're not going to change, telling them that it's dangerous is not going to get them to change because right. they don't think it's dangerous for them. However, if we can have their kids say, Daddy, I love you, but I don't feel safe. Or we can teach them that if they drive distracted, their kid is about three times more likely to drive distracted than if he grew up in a household without a mom or dad who drove distracted. Now we're getting there. 
you think about it, it's the right thing to do when you share the road with other people, not to drive distracted and to give your full attention to the road. You know, we also talk a lot about defensive driving. There's so many crazies out there. You have to be more careful than ever. How could you drive defensively and protect yourself if you're looking at your phone? You know, during the pandemic, I did a talk with um, a dad and his son was killed when a distracted driver went through a red light. You know, we'd done the talk, oh, half a dozen times on Zoom. And then he called me and said, I need to talk to you. And he said, I, I didn't tell the police this. I didn't tell my wife this. At the time, that guy, that distracted driver killed my kid. I was looking at my phone. And if I hadn't, my son might be alive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, psychologists will talk about that in terms of, uh, I think they call it anticipatory regret. That's something that I think has, you know, value in talking with folks. I don't, I mean, I'll talk a little bit about the dangers of distracted driving, particularly if the kids haven't started driving yet. But if it's seniors in high school or if it's businesses, it's in the slideshow. But I, I don't spend a lot of time on it because that's not likely to get people to put their phones down. And we, and there are, are ways we can get them to put their phone down. And we're going to come up with new ways. We're going to come up with new ways to a whole bunch of focus groups, new ways to get put, kids to put their phone down. And, and that's what gives me optimism. That's what gives me optimism. Joel, thanks for being a guest uh, on The Road We Travel. I appreciate you uh, taking the time because I know how busy you are. Well, I'm happy to do it. Uh, you know that I I just love Drive Smart Virginia, and Drive Smart Virginia has the best and probably, I don't know if it's the only, but it's certainly the best conference out there when it comes to distracted driving. There are other traffic safety conferences, but they have tons and tons of different topics. But if you're talking distracted driving, people know they need to uh, go to Drive Smart Virginia for that. And, and I know how hard all you folks worked to get that law passed, the hands-free law passed in, in, in Virginia. Well, thank you. And uh, by the way, the Distracted Driving Summit. Summit. <laughs> thank you, Joel. The Distracted sure. Driving Summit is uh, slated for July, August this year. And it'll be in Norfolk at the Main. So you can get more information by going to our website, drivesmartva.org. And, of course, you want to visit Joel's website, ndd.org, and see all the stuff that, that uh, they have to offer at that website. Joel, thanks again for the time you spent with us today and, and for what you do. You, you really are out there making a difference. All right. Thank you so much, Rich. I appreciate it. That wraps up this installment of The Road We Travel, a production of Drive Smart Virginia. Questions, comments, suggestions? Email us at info at drivesmartva.org. Visit our website, drivesmartva.org. And also be sure to follow us, like us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at the same handle, at drivesmartva. Thanks for joining us on The Road We Travel.